You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 36. We're going to wrap up the book of Jeremiah today, and uh, you may be thinking, wow, it's about time. Uh, we've, been, we've been in this book for a while, and I hope that um, it's been a blessing to you as much as it has to me studying it and preparing each week. So today we want to wrap it up, and, and there was a, several different ways I wanted to try to do this, and I started chasing quite a few rabbits this week trying to figure out how to land the plane, and I kind of came back to what my original thought was three or four months ago, and that's chapter 36. Chapter 36 is kind of set a little bit back in time a little bit from where we were just a few weeks ago. And that the, the Babylonian army is basically outside the gates of Jerusalem. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've, we've kind of already moved into the phase of the, the Babylonian army under King Nebuchadnezzar is already attacking the southern kingdom. And I really appreciate Andrew last week unpacking what it meant when Jeremiah said under the inspiration of God that his law would be written on our hearts and how that's accomplished in the gospel and what Jesus did on the cross and through his resurrection. But what we want to do is we want to step back just a little bit right before this army invades the city of Jerusalem and what was happening in the mind of the king. And I think what's, what we see this morning in chapter 36 is really going to give us a, a synopsis of what was happening in the southern kingdom through all that we've been talking about, that the core issue in the center of their heart and in the center of their leader, the king, was disobedience, just simply refusing to accept the truth. So let's pick it up in verse 4 in chapter 36. Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah, all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him. And Jeremiah ordered Baruch, saying, I am banned from going to the house of the Lord. So you are to go, and on the day of fasting and the hearing of all the people in the Lord's house, you shall read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you have written at my dictation. You shall read them also in the hearing of all the men of Judah who come out of their cities. It may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord, and that everyone will turn from his evil way, for great is the anger and the wrath of the Lord, that he is pronounced against his people. And Baruch the son of Neriah did all that Jeremiah the prophet ordered him about reading from the scroll the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. Father, we bow before you today thanking you for your goodness and mercy. Father, far too often in my walk with you, my prayer life has been such that I spent more time just asking you for more things rather than thanking you for what you've already done. Father, you're teaching me about gratitude. And Father, you're teaching me that in, in the most unusual of ways, that while we have the freedom to gather this morning, there are people halfway around the globe that are shaking in fear because there's bombs falling all around and there's soldiers in their streets. They're wondering if they're going to be able to have any food. They're wondering if they're going to be able to stay in their homeland. And Father, on this side of the globe, I was able to sleep in a comfortable house last night with heat. I was able to turn the faucet on this morning to get some fresh water. I was able to open my refrigerator and get something to eat. And Father, that is all because of your hand. That your goodness and your mercy is fresh every morning. And 
Father, whether that comes from a glass of clean water or a warm home, or the fact that we can walk out our doors, get in our cars, and I have to worry about being accosted in the street by a foreign entity. But Father, you have been so good to us. And Father, I think, well, I know that your word teaches this, that thanksgiving and gratitude is what helps us to have joy and peace restored. Father, it's not about what we don't have, it's about what you've given us. So Father, we are thankful for all that we enjoy as part of this life. And Father, I know there are people in this room and those watching online this morning that they're going through some very difficult things in their life. Family members that are in a hospital. Or Father, maybe the anniversary of, of someone that they've lost in their life that was very, very important to them. The, this morning, for whatever reason, it's come back to kind of hang over their head. And Father, the pain is real, the loss is real, the, the, the hurt is real, the depression is real, the anxiety in their heart is real. And uh, Father, I pray that that we could take a look around us and see all that you've given us. And, and Father, from that place of gratitude and from that place of just being thankful, Father, we find the peace and the joy that you've promised us. Father, I thank you for these people. I thank you for their time and their commitment to this ministry here. So, Father, we thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. We thank you for your grace that, that gives us more than we deserve far more. And we thank you, Father, for our lives being restored through Jesus Christ, the righteous, who died on a cross, resurrected the third day, so that we may have freedom. Thank you for that. Now, Father, as we turn our attention to your word, give us guidance this morning. We ask it in your name. Amen. Have you ever wondered why it is that a, that a home place that's left unattended kind of gets in disarray. Um, I've seen this with, with homes in my family that, you know, maybe a, a parent or grandparent or someone passes away and, and the kids end up with the house and, you know, they're, they're not there and the house is empty and, and they're just not able to be at that home place. And then over time, even though no one's living in the house, it's incredible to me how quickly things get overgrown and it's incredible to me how much the inside of the house can get dusty and dirty even though there's no one living there. If you've got maybe a, a vacation home at the beach or in the mountains, you're probably amazed at when you go back after not being there for a few months how kind of overgrown it is and how kind of run down it looks as though just living there and being there consistently provides some kind of life even to the property. Or maybe, maybe you've wondered why it is that as we get older, hopefully you're gaining wisdom, hopefully you're getting wiser. But at the same time you're getting wiser about the world and God's purpose and will for your life, it's the same time your body's beginning to kind of break down. So you have all these grand ideas in your head about what you could do and be about in God's, God's world, but then you have all those aches and pains and all those things the doctor's telling you, and it's almost like this paradox between the, the spirit is willing, but man, the body is broken, man, and with every day I get older, I'm feeling that. Amen. There's some amens. I'm glad I'm not alone there. Yeah, you ever wonder why that is? You ever wonder why it is that that brand new vehicle you bought at the dealership, that before you can even drive it off the lot, you've lost about 10% of the value of that vehicle? I mean, you, you, you've not driven it on vacation or even to work yet, but 
the, the, the experts will tell you that you just lost some percentage of value just simply because you now own the vehicle. Well, it all kind of loosely has a connection to something called the second law of thermodynamics. Now, you had no idea when you got up this morning and came to church that I was going to bring up the second law of thermodynamics. Trust me, I'm not going to go very deep in this, but there's something you need to know about this. The second law of thermodynamics says that everything that is left to itself tends to deteriorate, break down. Matter of fact, the science experts as they are tell us that the universe itself is winding down. That that house, that summer home that you've got in the mountains or the beach, when it's not had anyone in it for a while, it gets overgrown. It gets dusty and dirty, and it almost looks as though the house is dilapidated, even though you're keeping it up. But even though someone's not living there, there's just something about it that has no life there. Why is it that you build a campfire, you got all this fresh dry wood, and if that fire is set, and you got a nice flame at the beginning, and it's nice and warm, but over time, you know what happens? It burns out, and all you're left with is heat, smoke, and some ashes. It's this idea of entropy, and we see it everywhere. And it's actually connected to the fall, all the way back in the Garden of Eden when judgment came upon the world. Everything began to deteriorate at that point. Kids on summer break. Man, that first month of June, man, it's activity, excitement. And by August, they're bored. And they wouldn't admit this for many of them, but we're ready to go back to school, get back in a routine. It's this idea that things that are left untouched gravitate towards breaking down. Now, what we have seen in this southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem, that they have disengaged from their faith in God, and they've put their faith in false gods and idols. And, and we would like to think that, that they could just kind of stay in this, this middle ground, right? That they could just kind of stay in this one place that the growth that they've gained in walking with God and putting faith in God from the time they were exiled and the time they were given the land and all of the history and timeline of the Old Testament, we see that the people of God had great faith in God for a period of their history. And you would think that all that they gained during that time would kind of be withheld and held on to. But the fact is, is that as they turn their heart away from God, they experience entropy. And then entropy leads to complacency. And then complacency leads to apathy. And apathy leads to mediocrity. And here's the thing, the crazy thing about mediocrity uh, I tell my students at the Bible college all the time, um, because they are followers of Jesus, don't you dare turn in a paper that's mediocre. I tell them at the very beginning of the class, I said, look, if you're following Jesus, give him your best. Don't give Jesus your second leftovers. Turn in excellence. Whatever excellence is for that student, I expect excellence in their writing. I expect excellence in their work. Mediocrity should never, ever be part of God's people, his church, are those who've been transformed by the good news. Mediocrity just simply has no place in your life. Yet for the southern kingdom and for many believers today, mediocrity has become the normal. And in fact, mediocrity in our faith, after we've practiced it for some time, we take vibrancy and we define it as mediocrity. We take, rather than having joy and peace in our walk with Jesus, we take mediocrity, accept it as normal, and then we live out a mediocre faith for the rest of our lives all the while thinking that there's got to be something more. The southern kingdom, well, they've moved from entropy. They've not been engaged in their faith. They've 
been going through rituals, but they've not been following God at all. And that's led them to be very complacent. Jeremiah has been preaching. His ministry is going to span some 40 years. 40 years of saying to them that, that God is going to bring correction in their life and not a single person listened. And then that complacency leads to apathy where not only do they not hear the message, but even if they hear it, they don't care. And then eventually, the normal becomes mediocrity. Where on the one hand, they're going to the temple, offering the sacrifices, but in the rest of their life, they're doing exactly as they please. They are in control, not God. We've seen that, that through this book that we've seen God say to them that the nation itself has committed adultery. That instead of being in a love relationship with him, they've turned to other gods that are no gods at all. And as a result, they're suffering. But the suffering has only just begun. They're suffering spiritually. But right outside the gates of their city is a Babylonian army that is, quite frankly, running over every nation that comes against it. As a matter of fact, the Egyptian military in all of its might and all of its strength will be completely and utterly defeated by King Nebuchadnezzar and that Babylonian army, and they're right outside the gates of the city. Did you know that it is possible to hear the truth and yet not be changed by it? Did you know that it is possible to hear what God has to say about your life, your purpose, the meaning of life, why you're here, and yet never actually really be changed by it? And that's exactly where mediocrity takes you. Complacency that eventually leads to mediocrity, that even the truth of God's Word, the, the powerful times of worship that should do something inside of you just becomes second, well, just another day, just another thing, just, well, quite frankly, mediocrity. Did you know that the majority of people following Jesus today are living in exactly that place? And the pandemic has made it far worse. That we're simply just naming the name of Jesus, but we're not living in a vibrant, loving, powerful relationship that is changing us day in and day out. Does that describe your faith? Or does mediocrity and complacency describe more about where you are? The reality of, of what we've seen in the book of Jeremiah is this, that when you reject God's word and when you reject his truth, and you disobey what God is saying to you, well, there's a cost connected to that. And I would offer to you that the cost of disobedience is much higher than the cost of obedience. What we have found, and what I've seen, and what I've experienced personally, is that we have so many options now for entertainment, to fill our lives with lesser things, that quite frankly, our faith has just become one more thing on the list. And we become satisfied with mediocrity rather than vibrancy. So let's take a look at what's happening with Jeremiah and this king by the name of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is the son of Josiah. If you go back to 2 Kings chapter 23 and 24, you see the timeline of the kings of the southern kingdom. And Josiah was a king who was godly. He was a king who did the right thing for the right reasons. But his son is Jehoiakim, and that's who is the king at this fourth year of uh, this particular time frame. Look at verse 4. So Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll the dictation of Jeremiah, all the words that the Lord has spoken to him. Now, we have to ask the question, why is Jeremiah 
not preaching at the temple. Well, there's a reason for that. If you go back to Jeremiah 25, that's where we were about three weeks ago. I told you that Jeremiah was given a message from God to go preach inside the temple. And that message was pretty, was a pretty tough message. And basically, not only does he call the people out, but he calls the king out. Well, apparently, after that sermon, the king bans Jeremiah from coming anywhere near the temple. So Jeremiah has kind of been confined to his home. So he calls Baruch, this friend of his, and says, okay, Baruch, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what the Lord's told me to do. I am going to communicate to you the entire message that God has given me, and I want you to write it down. So Baruch sits down, and I don't know how much time this took because God had said a lot to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah had said a lot to the kingdom. But in this moment, Jeremiah is in essence writing the first draft of the book of Jeremiah. And Baruch is going to write it down for him. But the point, the purpose for this is since Jeremiah can't go to the temple, guess what he's going to do? Verse 5. And Jeremiah ordered Baruch saying, I am banned from going to the house of the Lord. So you are to go. And on the day of fasting in the hearing of all the people in the Lord's house, you shall read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you have written at my dictation. You shall read them also in the hearing of all the men of Judah who come out of their cities. So Jeremiah says to Baruch, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to the temple on my behalf, and you're going to read the entire message. Now, I don't know how long it would have taken to read this, but I would imagine it would have taken several hours. So Baruch says, okay, I'm, I'm going to do what you've called me to do. So he writes down this entire message, and actually a year passes before Baruch is actually able to go and do this. Now, at a time where he was going to share this message just a year later, and what's interesting is, is they're going to share this message, or Baruch is going to share this message at a time when the nation is fasting and praying. Look at verse 9. In the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, in the ninth month, all the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities of Judah of Jerusalem proclaimed a fast before the Lord. Now, we've got a paradox here. We've got a problem. Now, on the one hand, the people are far from God. They're not following God. They become complacent. They're worshiping idols. If you remember, we said that on every, every high hill and under every green tree were altars to false gods. But here, they are calling a fast. And and when you see that phrase in the Old Testament, it talks about a, a specific fast that they're called to out of mourning or out of fear. And the desire is, is that God will move. The desire is, is that through their fasting and through their prayer to temple that God will intervene. Well, we have to ask the question, why are these people who are not following God trying to follow God by praying and fasting? If you remember, over the last several weeks, we've talked about that they would continue to go, go through the, the rituals of religion but their heart was unchanged. Why is it that they're gathering in the temple to pray and to fast? I'll tell you why. It's because right outside that gate, right outside those walls, they see a massive army coming their way. And the amazing thing is, is Jeremiah has told them over and over again that King Nebuchadnezzar's coming, his army's coming with them, they are going to come over the walls of Jerusalem, and they are going to take that city as God's judgment upon them if they don't turn back to him. So the amazing thing is, is these people are falling on their face before God, but they're not praying what God is expecting them to pray. God has said to them multiple times, repent. That word simply means to turn, to change. 
to seek God, to lay down the idols, to let nothing come between them and God. But that's not what they're praying in the temple. What they're praying in the temple is, oh, God, save us out of this mess that's getting ready to come upon us. You ever prayed any prayers like that? Well, I have. And I've done exactly what the southern kingdom is doing. My heart, complacent towards God, yet you let some pain and some trouble come. Oh, you talk about a prayer life then, I've got one. Uh, for many folks who, who've put their faith in Jesus, the only time they pray is when trouble comes. The only time they mention the name of Jesus is when they see the army standing outside of the walls. The only time that they even think about prayer, other than what happens at church, the only, the only time they think about it is when the doctor gives them a bad report. That's exactly what's happening in the Southern Kingdom. We realize very little has changed in the human heart all these years. That these people are running to God not because they want to turn, not because they want to have a relationship with Him, not because they want to have their sins forgiven and all their disobedience. They're coming to Him because they're saying, God, get us out of this mess. And God is saying, no. That mess on the outside of the walls, that army, they're out there to bring correction to the very people who are asking God to deliver them from it. Now, why would God dictate to Jeremiah, to dictate to Baruch, to write down this entire message? These people have been told over and over again. At this point, we're at about the 23, 25-year mark of Jeremiah's ministry. He's a little over halfway. He has told them over and over again that this is going to happen. Why would God do this? Go, go back up to verse 7. I want you to see this. The reason that God is doing this, verse 7, that it may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord and that everyone will turn from his evil way, for great is the anger and wrath that the Lord is pronounced against his people. That's the prayer that God is looking for. That's the reason the army's out there. Not just to, to put them in a place of fear of the army, but to put them in a place of fear of God and respect for him and to realize just how apathetic they really are. That God would use a pagan, ungodly, Gentile army to bring correction to his own people. So Baruch goes, verse 10, in the hearing of all the people, he reads the words of Jeremiah from the scroll to the house of the Lord in the chamber of Gamaria, the son of Shaphan, the secretary, which was in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. So here's what, here's what Baruch does. He goes and he does exactly what Jeremiah's asking him to do. He goes and preaches the entire entirety of all that God has said to the prophet Jeremiah. Well, what's interesting about this is that as he's reading this, there are some leaders there from the king's court. And they hear what Baruch is saying, and they say to Baruch, hey, can you come and have a private meeting with us and read all of this again? We'll make sure that we understand what you're, what you're saying. And in verses 20 and following, basically they pull him into a private meeting, and these leaders, this part of the king's court says, okay, read it again. And he reads the entire message of God, of his judgment, why that Babylonian army is outside the gates to the king's leaders. Well, it was at this point, the king's leader says, man, the king has got to hear this. We've got to get this message before the king. Now, understand that the king has heard this message multiple times. He heard it directly from the mouth of Jeremiah in chapter 24 and 25. But the king's leadership decides that the, the king really needs to hear this message. So, they take the scroll, they hide the scroll initially, 
They go and tell the king, hey, the king, you, you need to hear what Jeremiah has to say through the hand of Baruch. And, and he said these things, and, and king, you need to hear this. Well, finally, the king agrees. And he asks for a guy, one of his servants, to come into his, his room, his throne room, and read the entire scroll. Verse 22. It was the ninth month, ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house, and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. So the king had this winter dwelling. It was a smaller dwelling, so they could keep it warm during the harsh winters. And in the middle of this dwelling, there's a large pot that they had a fire in, almost like a fire or a wood stove. And they're burning things to keep, keep warm. So Jehuda is there to read the scroll. Now, now, Jeremiah would have put this together as they did in the custom of the day in a scroll that had two wooden reels. And as they would read the scroll, they would unroll one side and roll the other side up. So Jehoiada comes in and is going to read this entire scroll to the king. Look at verse 23. And as Jehoiada read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire of the fire pot. So get this picture. Jehoiada the servant is reading the scroll of Jeremiah that Baruch had written down. It's the entire message that, that Jeremiah had been given by God. Jehoiakim had already heard that message multiple times. So it wasn't as though Jehoiakim is wanting to hear again, maybe to respond or maybe to see if there's anything new. No, the king has a very clear purpose in what he's doing. And as this servant would read a portion and roll it off, the king is holding the other side. And each time a new portion would be read, he would take his knife and cut it off and throw it into the fire. Till eventually, the entire scroll, the entire message of God is burned and gone. I want you to notice how the other servants respond here. Verse 23, again, as Jehoiada read the three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Verse 24, yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. Now the, the closest confidants of the king around him, they could care less. They were not afraid. It says here that they didn't tear their garments, which I find is a very interesting statement. I think the reason that's included here is because Jehoiakim's father, Josiah, if you go back to 2 Kings 22-23, Josiah was a godly man. Jehoiakim's dad was a godly man. And he tried to do the right things for the right reasons. And there was a day, and I told you about this weeks ago, that the book of the law was found in the temple. It hadn't been read for years. Hilkiah, the priest, reads the entire book of the law, God's word. And you know what Josiah did? He tears his garments. He repents. He's broken over what he hears. But notice, these years later, while an army is outside the gate, this king in all of his pride and all of his arrogance, this king symbolically takes God's word and basically shows what he thinks of it. He simply throws it into a pot and allows it to burn up. In his pride and in his arrogancy, in, in, his, in his entropy over years of, of ignoring, years of, of not investing in his faith, in years of idolatry, in years of just going through religious rituals at the temple, he's gotten to the place where he is completely indifferent. 
He is completely complacent, and he completely could care less about God's word of the truth. Folks, that is the path that apathy leads to. When your faith is not invested in, when your faith in Jesus and your walk in Jesus is nothing more than a prayer you prayed 20 years ago, if, if your faith is nothing more than walking an aisle 20 years ago and you haven't opened the Bible, you don't pray other than what happens on Sunday morning, listen to me, you have a faith that is undergoing entropy. It is withdrawing. It is shrinking. It is dying. You cannot base your faith and walk in Jesus with what happens here for an hour and an hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday morning. I have... The incredible privilege right now, and we've, we've been doing this for a few weeks, but I, I count it as an incredible privilege. We have a group of young men out of this church that gather with me every Sunday evening at 6.30. And we've been walking through the New Testament. We're in the book of Acts right now. We've, we walked through the book of Luke, now we're in the book of Acts. I don't stand up in front of a lectern and teach them. I sit with them, and we discuss what the Word's saying. We discuss how it's impacting us. We discuss what we're doing as a result of what we're reading. They're not just reading it, they're studying it. And the reason I know that is because when we get together, the things that they are hearing from the Lord could only come from the Lord. And I get to sit there and listen to them talk about how God's Word is impacting them. By the way, wives of those men, if you're starting to see a difference in your husband, let me tell you why that is. It's not because he's meeting with me, it's because he's meeting with the Lord. He is changing your husband from the inside out. And I am seeing it week after week after week. All of a sudden, their faith is becoming alive. Now, they're getting to the point now where they can't not get in God's Word during the week. And that was the whole point. You pour into your faith. You practice the disciplines. And you'll have a faith that's alive. You'll have a faith that's not mediocrity. You'll have a faith that's not apathetic towards the world and towards your family and towards your purpose and towards the meaning of life. You'll have a, you'll have a faith that actually means something. And not only will you see it, but the people who are closest to you will see it as well. God's Word is not going to come to an end just because this king burns it. God's Word is not just going to all of a sudden disappear because a king who's filled with pride decides that it's unimportant. God's Word is going to continue. As a matter of fact, when you go on down to verse 28, look at this. God says to Jeremiah, hey, Jeremiah, i got more work for you to do. Take another scroll and write on it all the formal words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. So God says to Jeremiah, hey, they burnt the scroll. They didn't repent. The king didn't repent. The people inside the court, other than the ones that are very close, they're a little bit afraid of what's going on. As a matter of fact, some of the king's closest people, the ones who were, who were actually afraid, are like telling the king, king, I don't think this is a good idea. But nonetheless, the king ignores it. And by default, the rest of the nation is going to ignore it. And so here we are, and God says, write another scroll. Write all that I've taught you. Do it again. But I want to add a chapter to the scroll. I want to add a couple of paragraphs to the message. Look at verse 29. He says, And concerning Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, you shall say, Thus says the Lord, You have burned this scroll 
saying, why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and will cut off from it man and beast? Notice what God does here. This is just an incredible thing. So, so God says to Jeremiah, rewrite the scroll. Call, scroll, call, call Brute back in. He's going to write it down for you. But here's something I want you to add. I want you to add in that scroll this paragraph. Hey, King, of jo- King Jehoiakim, King of Judah, I want you to understand something. I know what you were saying in the room, in your house, in your apartment, while you were burning the scroll. I know what you said. And what he said in that room was this. Why does Jeremiah keep saying that judgment's going to come? Why does Jeremiah keep saying that the land's going to be destroyed as he burns the scroll? God was right there in that room heard everything that he said, knew the motivation of his heart. And now God's telling Jeremiah, put his words in the scroll. And make sure he understands this, verse 30. Therefore says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have none to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to to the heat by day and the frost of the night. And I will punish him and his offspring and his servants for their iniquity or their sins or their rebellion. I will will bring upon him, I will bring upon them, upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the people of Judah, all the disaster that I pronounced against them, but they will not hear. God says to Jehoiakim, and he has Baruch under Jeremiah to write this in the letter, as a paragraph in the scroll. Jehoiakim, I got a message for you. The message I have for you is, is because of your disobedience, there's going to be a cost associated with that. And here's what it's going to cost you. You're going to lose your life. You won't even have a burial. The kings of of Israel would, would, would be buried with their fathers. They'd be buried in a nice tomb. They'd be buried where people could go and see and, and revel in the days of their leadership, but not this king. This king is going to die, and his body is going to be thrown over the wall of the city of Jerusalem, left out in a ditch. How do we know that? 2 Kings chapter 24. And not only that, there'll never be another offspring from Jehoiakim that's going to sit on the throne. As a matter of fact, the whole city is going to fall to Babylon. There'll be no more southern kings, at least for 70 years. You see, obedience, obedience provides blessings, vibrancy, everything opposite of mediocrity, but disobedience always brings a cost. I guarantee you it's a cost that you don't want to pay. It's a cost that you're not planning for. It's a cost that you never even considered. That disobedience in your heart, the arrogance and the pride is where it flows from. It says, God, I know better. I know what's best for my life. And it may be years before you feel the circumstances of that, but make no mistake about it, you will. For those of you who've never put your faith in Jesus, whether you're watching online or this morning, let's, let's be very clear about this. There's a reason why you've heard the gospel multiple times. You know exactly what it means to put faith in Jesus. You know exactly what your next steps are. You know why you're refusing it? The same way I did when I was 16. It's because you've got your hands on something else that you like better. You've got your arms around something that you value higher than following Jesus. And you know that by following Jesus, you're going to have to let go of this to follow him because you can't have it both ways. So when I was 16, what, what, what was in the way between me and following Jesus, what I knew I was supposed to do, is I kept hanging on to things. My lifestyle that I had at that time, the friends that I ran with, the things that we did, the things we ran after. I didn't want to give that up. I liked that stuff. 
And make sure you understand that, that disobeying, not heeding the call to come and be right and reconciled to God, there's a cost associated with that. Well, in this life, the cost of that is you're going to be looking for peace your entire life and never find it. You're going to be looking for meaning in your life and never find it. You're going to always be wondering about your purpose. And, and as you go through life, you'll think, okay, my purpose is to get a degree, so you get the degree. Well, my purpose is to get a high-paying job, so you get the high-paying job. My, my purpose is to have a family and kids, so you have the family and you have the kids. My purpose is to, is to get the Ph.D., you get the Ph.D. My purpose is to climb the corporate ladder, you climb the corporate ladder. You, your purpose then becomes, oh, I've got to be known in my, in my community. I've got to be a community leader so people will pat me on the back and tell me how great I am. So you do that. And your life, one thing after another, then, then get this, your purpose becomes retirement so you can play golf and, and live in Florida. And then, then your purpose begins, okay, just enjoy my grandkids. And every day and every year and every season of life, there's a new goal and a new priority. But guess what's happening? Your life has never been really changed, and none of those things have ever changed your life. So you're always pursuing purpose. You're always pursuing meaning. You're always pursuing love, true love, real love. Never really finding it. Only to end up on a deathbed with a doctor telling you you've got hours, days, months to live, and now you have no way to fix any of it. And you've missed out on a whole life of purpose, joy, and peace because you rejected the one truth that mattered. And the one truth that mattered was, is your creator saying, come to me. I can give you life. I can give you meaning. And I can give you purpose. And yet, you rejected it because you, in your own mind, decided, no, that's going to cost me too much. But then at the end of your life, you realize that all of your disobedience and all your rejection has costed you far, far, far more. And the incredible thing is, is when you breathe your last breath apart from Christ, the cost gets even higher. And that cost lasts for eternity. Complacency and apathy. Rejecting Christ, or if you've accepted Christ, but just not living and walking with him, there's a cost. Always a cost involved in that. God's Word is true whether you accept it or not. God, God's Word is, is truth whether you want to receive that or not. Down through the generations, let's just consider this for a moment. For 2,000 years, this truth has been under attack over and over and over again. Philosophers. There was a French philosopher named Voltaire. Voltaire said that Christianity would die out in 25 years. He said, he said that he himself was going to be able to put an end to this plague on society. That's what he called it. That Christianity was a plague on society, and that within his lifetime, he was going to destroy it. And he wrote all kinds of books about how he was going to do it. And he said that after his death, within 25 years, Christianity would not even be breathed. He said that the word Christian or the word Jesus would not even be mentioned within 25 years of his death. Well, get this. Voltaire is dead, rotten in a grave. His books are forgotten about. And God's word still stands. Isn't that amazing? Amen. The gospel is still changing lives. It changed mine. It's changed yours. All over the world right now, People are digging into God's Word. In the Ukraine right now, there are churches that are still meeting and proclaiming the gospel while people are being shot in the streets. Listen, Voltaire never wrote anything that had that kind of impact on anybody. Neither did Muhammad. 
Neither did John Smith. Neither did any other human author even come close. And whether you accept it, whether you undermine it, whether you ignore it, the fact is, is that every single word that God has breathed will come to fulfillment just as he pleases, period, whether you like it or whether you don't. William Tyndale was an amazing guy in history right around the Reformation time, and he, he had it as his sole purpose and goal to get the Bible into the hands of common people. At that time, the Catholic Church kept the Scripture to themselves and interpreted it for the masses, but Tyndale believed that the Word of God should be accessible. It should be in the common language of English. It should be able to be read by even the most common person out on the street, and they should have access to it. So Tyndale took it upon himself to publish the first English translation of the New Testament in 1525. But as you can imagine, those in organized religion didn't care much for the fact that he had done this. Matter of fact, they said he was a heretic, that, they, that he should be put to death for it. There was a guy by the name of uh, Thomas Wolsey. He was the archbishop of the Catholic Church in England. And this particular archbishop made it his goal in life to burn every copy he could find of this English translation of the New Testament because he did not want God's Word in the hands of the common people. So out outside St. Paul's Cathedral in London, this archbishop would pile up as many as he could find, and he would burn them. And historians tell us that for weeks there's fires burning in front of the cathedral representing his disdain for the fact that Tyndale would go and do such a heretical thing to provide the New Testament in the English language so people could read it for themselves. Well, Wolseley decided that he had to take it up a step because he couldn't find enough copies to burn. So he, he employs this guy by the name of, what was his name, Packington, there it is, Packington. And he employs this guy and says, okay, here's your, here's your job. I'm going to pay you to go find every English translation you can find. Bring them to me, and I'm going to burn them. Because this guy has decided that he is the one who's in control. The one thing he didn't count on, though, was that this particular guy that he hired also worked for Tyndale. Now, Tyndale had to flee to Antwerp, Belgium, to hide out because, well, they put a kind of a price on his head. So he's hanging out in Antwerp, Belgium. And this guy, Packington, was also working for Tyndale. So Packington goes to, to Tyndale and says, hey, I've got a guy who will buy every one of your English translations of the Bible, the New Testament. Tyndale goes, wow, that's great, because understand at this particular point, Tyndale is in debt up to his neck. I mean, he spent every dime he's got making this happen. So he is deeply in debt. He's on the run. And Tyndale's excited to hear that somebody's going to buy all of his copies of the New Testament. So Paganin tells him, well, you've you got to understand this. It's mostly the archbishop. And Tyndale goes, well, yeah, sir, he wants to buy them. He's going to burn them. And Paganin goes, yeah, but let's think about this for a moment. If he gives me the money to take your pile of New Testaments that, that Tyndale had at that moment and give them over to be burned, I'll give you the money. So Tyndale begins to think, well, wait a minute. I could take the money that was intended to destroy God's Word, turn it around, print more copies, and get more copies of the New Testament out. And that's exactly what happens. So 
So Mosley is paying Packington. Packington's giving the money to Tyndale. Tyndale's taking the money, printing more and more copies, and the archbishop can't figure out why in the world he can't overcome this. The reason is, is because God says, no one is going to thwart my purposes in the world. <laughs> Isn't that an incredible story? A few things we want to consider from not only this text, but from the whole book of Jeremiah. The first thing I want you to consider is that it is possible to pray, to fast, to read God's Word, to attend a fellowship like this, and never be changed by it. One of the things that, that keeps me up at night, and I'm not, making, I'm not exaggerating, there are things that wake me up in the middle of the night, and all I can think of is the Lord just trying to tell me something, to wake me up about something, get, my, get me to see something. But here's the thing, that, that we could be doing this thing we call church. Now, we know the church is people, not a building. But some people say we're going to do church. Well, you're part of a church, right? Part of the fellowship if you've been born again. But the thing that, that bothers me deeply is that people can hear the truth over and over and over and over again and never be changed by it. People can go through the motions of praying and even signing up our 40 days of prayer that started Wednesday, even sign up. And I'm not pointing to anybody in particular. I understand that. I'm not, I'm not saying anybody specific. I'm just saying, because I've done it, that we can go through all these modes of religiosity. We can practice a whole bunch of religion and be far, far, far away from Jesus. Does that make any sense at all to y'all? And then here's what happens, folks. We get apathetic about it. We get complacent about it. And then we replace vibrancy in Christ and life in Christ with mediocrity. And then we get into the mode of mediocrity, mediocrity in our marriage, mediocrity in our home. Hey, have you ever got to the place where you're, 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 you and your spouse are just passing in the hallways? I've been there. Because life and all the things that we're supposed to be doing and have to do, they're important but they begin to encroach upon our life. And the first, the first thing we cut out of our life, the first thing that we cut out is our relationship and walk with Jesus. And then we wonder, how in the world did I get to this place? I'll tell you how. Apathy leads to mediocrity. Where we accept something less than for something as authentic. That, that we begin to not even recognize what authentic faith in Jesus looks like anymore. And by the way, you know one of the number one reasons the millennials and Gen Z are not even considering, they're driving down 301 Roberts this morning, they're seeing all these cars there and they could care less. You know why? Because the people they grew up with, even maybe the parents in their home, when they saw what faith meant to them, they said, I could care less. I'm going to spend Sundays the way I want to. If faith made no more difference in your life than that, then why would I want to follow that same path? I know that sounds hard this morning, but the fact of the matter is every statistic that I'm looking at right now concerning the growth of church points to the fact that the generations have become apathetic and mediocre about their faith. So it's possible to go through the motions. It's possible to do all these things and look from the outside, look very religious, but on the inside, be cold and indifferent. It is possible to put up a facade of religiosity while on the inside, not much more than an atheist. Secondly, 
neither ignoring or destroying God's Word is going to change anything anyway. I don't know that there's many of you who are trying to actively destroy God's Word. Now, I do get some interesting emails, okay, of people who are definitely, definitely antagonistic against God's Word. I get them on a regular basis. Maybe one day I'll throw one on the screen for you just to show you what Mondays look like around here. But anyway, I don't think there's anybody in the room who is actively seeking to destroy it, but maybe there are some people in the room who are simply ignoring it. Or maybe there are some folks in the room who simply don't have time for it because our time is being spent somewhere else. Do you know what the average amount of time is that, that the American culture, American people are spending online per day? Would you like to know what that is? I'm talking about streaming, social media, Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, list goes on. Netflix, Amazon Prime. The average right now is eight hours. It went up dramatically since this COVID situation because we've been locked down. The, the average right now is eight hours per day. I'm not talking about your work or your school. I'm talking about entertainment, just stuff that you like to do. Eight hours, YouTube. Oh, I can go down an eight-hour YouTube hole real quick, okay? Netflix, binge-watching. It's all part of our it's part of our culture now, right? You know what the number one reason I hear oftentimes when, when we talk about prayer or spiritual disciplines, about you know, having a daily time with the Lord, daily time in God's Word, do you, do you know what the reason I get more than any other reason why we're not doing it, if people are clear with me and, and to say, I'm not doing it and here's why? You, you know what? Take a wild guess. Anybody want to take a wild guess what the number one answer is? I don't have time. We have time for what we value, and apparently we're valuing social content quite a bit. Folks, that equates to 3,000 hours per year. Three, yeah, let that soak in there for a minute, 3,000 hours per year. Let's say, let's say that um, January 1st you make a goal that you're going to read 200 books in a year. 200, but you're going to read 200 good quality books in a year. You know how much time it would take you to read 200 books in one year? 417 hours. Yet we're spending 3,000 hours online with entertainment a year. No, I think you got time. So it's not about time. It's about values. It's about what's important. You see, my concern is not so much the time, although now I'm kind of reviewing how much time I'm spending and saying I need to cut back as well. I'm not so much concerned about time. I'm talking about the influence that it's having on you. I said this a couple weeks ago. Could it be that the reason you're feeling so empty and void inside, the reason you feel so depressed and down and anxious is because it's directly connected to the content you're watching and the stuff you're reading on Facebook? Could it be that there's some kind of connection there? Yeah, I think so, and especially eight hours. I think about this. You're here for an hour, hour and a half. You're hearing preaching through the songs. You're hearing me ramble on for 40 minutes, usually a week. So we've got you for an hour. But social media and streaming has got you for 56 hours. You see, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply concerned about the influence. I'm deeply concerned that the church is moving towards apathy and mediocrity simply because of where we're spending our time. COVID has made this much worse. Because we got into this lockdown, 
and we're still doing struggling with what all that means. And we're still, we, we develop some habits. Remember, it only takes about four to six months to develop a habit. We developed some new habits during COVID-19, and those habits are still ongoing. But make sure you understand that neither ignoring it or destroying it is going to change anything, but living in it is going to change you. Third, continued rejection of God's word is going to lead to total disregard. The king was warned multiple times. But we end up at the end of his life, and by the way, this is near the end of his life. He's not going to live much longer beyond this. Where do we find him? Throwing God's word into a pot, burning it up. His pride and his arrogance got to such a point because they'd been unchecked for so long. He, he has no problem just burning the very words of God that's been given to him to correct the nation and to escape the judgment that is coming. The people are praying and fasting inside the temple because they're afraid of the army that's outside the gate. But they're praying for deliverance. They're not praying in repentance. They're not praying saying, God, change us. We're sorry. We accept what we've done wrong. God, change us. No, they're saying, God, you fix the problem. There's a big difference between the two. And continued rejection, continued apathy leads to mediocrity and completely leads you to a place where you just disregard. You just don't care anymore. Or you're looking for more entertainment. Because 56 hours of our week is spent in entertainment, then the, the church should be entertaining me then, right? The, the church should be offering me things to entertain me because I'm a consumer. You're supposed to offer me things that make me feel good because 56 hours out of a week, everything that I'm watching on YouTube and everything is to make me feel good. So church, offer me something that's entertainment. If you don't offer me some entertainment, then fine, I'll find somebody or something that does. Continued rejection of God's word eventually will lead you to total disregard. We just don't care anymore. Statistics tell us that trends are telling us that folks that left the church through COVID because they've been trying to figure out a way to quit going to church for quite some time, COVID gave them the opportunity. Instead of coming out of rote tradition anymore, they just said, you know what? Now that I can stay home, I watch some on TV, I'm just going to quit watching on TV. And then eventually, they just quit coming all together. Statistics are telling us that a lot of those folks are never coming back. You know why? Because they have some new habits now. And complacency has set in. And mediocrity has taken over their life. Now, they'll tell you, absolutely, I'm a follower of Jesus. The only problem is they're not following him any at all during the week or any other time. Fourth and finally, the cost of disobedience is much greater than obedience. I hope that you see in the book of Jeremiah, as we've walked through this, that the cost of ignoring God, the cost of walking away, the cost of mediocrity, the cost of apathy is far greater than you want to pay. But yet so many just keep walking down this path thinking that somehow it's going to change. But you also need to understand this, obedience is rather costly as well. I would, not do you, I would not be telling you the truth if I told you that if you just follow Jesus, everything's going to be okay. It's not. It's going to be hard. There's going to be sacrifice involved with that. That's why at age 16, I finally came to the conclusion that I've got to lay some stuff down to follow Jesus. And guess what I found out? Jesus is far better than the stuff I was holding on to. Far better. But there's a cost involved. Not a cost of salvation. Salvation is free. But following Jesus... For those of you who have been following Jesus for a while, is it costly to follow Jesus? Yes, it is. Jeremiah 
He's got a price he's going to pay. Right after this chapter, he's arrested, he's beaten. Eventually, he's going to be thrown into a well to die, all because he spoke the truth. Jesus spoke the truth, healed people. Jesus, in his three and a half years, did things the world had never seen, called dead people back to life. Jesus was teaching things and nobody ever, he's, he's helping poor people. He's turning their lives around. How did it end for him? A cross, condemned to die for something he didn't do. So make sure you understand, there is cost involved with obedience, but there is a high, much higher, much greater cost in walking in disobedience. Please see the difference. Please respond. As we worship together in this lesson, please respond with the understanding that that if I'm a follower of Jesus, then I've got to walk with Jesus. And if I haven't put my faith in Jesus, what in the world are you waiting on? Why would you, why would you walk by the greatest opportunity that's ever been offered to you? And I can tell you this, if you keep walking by it, if you keep ignoring it, if you keep pushing it to the side, one day it's going to grow awfully quiet on God's side. The Bible talks about that he's given you over to a callous heart. Don't let that be you. Father in heaven, as we worship together in this last song, I, my, my prayer would be that, that, Father, we're being influenced by lesser things. If all, we just got to recognize it. And not only that, we got to recognize your truth as truth, that there is life after this life that the essence of humanity is a soul spirit that will never die. And that new birth that you promised us is that what gives us meaning to this life and purpose. For the believers in this room and watching online, Father, I, I don't know how they're spending their time. Maybe, maybe they're spending it wisely or maybe not. Father, if mediocrity has crept in, if, if their faith is just something they do on Sundays, but nothing that impacts them during the week, help them to see that for what it is. That it's disobedience. And there's a high cost connected to that. So Father, we thank you for your power and presence here today. And now, Father, we choose during this song to submit to your power and what you're calling us to do. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist Church.